would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 21. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 21. I want y'all to look at something just quickly. There's not a chair on the premises except on the front row. We got people looking high and low for a place to sit, folks standing in the back, and I still can't get anybody to sit on the front row, front and center. It has been 22 years since I heard the old, old story of how a Savior came from glory, and how he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. And I still find the need to compose myself before coming to the pulpit after rehearsing in song the glories of our God, the awesome nature of the grace that he has lavished us with through his son, Jesus Christ. This morning, I bring you the best news the world has ever been told. That Jesus is no longer in a garden grave outside the ancient city of Jerusalem. He is risen. Amen. Because of that, we are gathered here with gladness in our hearts today. And I preach this message today in the hope in the uh, eternal optimism that there might be some gathered here who, although aware on some level of the resurrection of Jesus, have yet to be fully touched by the power of the message of the gospel, who might today find the rest, forgiveness, and the hope of heaven that only comes through Jesus Christ. The great battle in Easter preaching, perhaps your great battle in evangelistic engagement, even more often than the Easter season. It's not against an outright ignorance of the message of the gospel. Virtually everyone knows that the Easter holiday, this Christian holiday, has reference to Jesus. Some fewer are aware that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. There's a collective awareness of that reality, the historical background of the Christian celebration of, of Easter. But even among those who may understand on some level that we celebrate today the resurrection of Jesus, there is still the absence of the kind of awareness, the kind of knowledge that finds its way into the very cracks and crevices of our existence. This is what the New Testament describes as the new birth. You can be entirely aware of the historical data that underlies the Christian celebration of Easter without ever having been truly touched by the power of the gospel. I cannot remember a time in my life when I did not believe that the Bible was God's word. I did not believe that God existed. I did not believe that Jesus was his son. But it took the work of God's Holy Spirit to open my eyes and grant ears to hear and a heart to discern come to full terms with the reality that my only hope for heaven, that the only source of forgiveness is God's only Son, Jesus Christ. And that to come to him, I must come on his terms or not be permitted to come at all. If you are today to come to Jesus, you must come by the repentance of your sin and by faith in Christ as the only way to come to God, the only way gain access to the gifts and promises of heaven. I'd like us to consider that this morning in some depth. We're going to look at just a single verse, 1 Corinthians 15 and 
verse number one, but it will benefit you to keep your Bibles before you as we'll look at a couple of other passages in the Bible and we'll look at the broader context of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 21. If you have found your way there, would you join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 21. The Bible says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, help us, Lord, to realize the full magnitude of what you have done in the sending forth of your only son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to regard him in sinless perfection as he is. See the agony, the bitterness of the cross, the full measure of atonement that is paid for our sin. Help us to rejoice with Mary and the other women and those disciples as they peer inside that empty garden grave. Help that our hearts would leap, that our affections would be turned toward heaven as we hear from this historic distance, he is not here. He is risen. Help that our hearts could feel the full weight of what you have done in human history to bring about our salvation. May Jesus receive all the glory. It's in the power of his name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. The Apostle Paul says again, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. He speaks here of the entrance of death into the world through Adam in the creation account of the book of Genesis. And he is contrasting the entrance of death through Adam and his sin with the entrance of resurrection and life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He reaches way back into the very foundations of the world, comparing and contrasting the work of Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 with the work of Jesus in the gospel through his death and resurrection. Sin and death entering the world through Adam and that fateful decision in the garden. Now life and grace and mercy and forgiveness and resurrection entering the world through Jesus by the power of his resurrection. In reaching back into the creation account, in order to help us to understand better the significance of Christ's resurrection, the Apostle Paul is drawing all of the story of the Bible together. All of the story of what God has done in human history in order to save us, a people all his own. If you've ever wondered about the basic flow, about the basic message of the Bible, it is encapsulated in this single verse. What was done in the Garden of Eden at the sin of Adam and Eve has been undone in the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we as the people of God are being restored to the Garden of God absence the presence of sin in the perfect presence of our God. This is the basic arc of the story of God's plan for salvation. Now what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is slightly unique. He comes close to this elsewhere. 
reaching back into the creation account to demonstrate a certain point about the work of Jesus as it contrasts with the work of Adam. But he's usually dealing with the manner in which sin enters the world, whereas in Christ, righteousness has entered the world through Jesus. Here, the point of comparison is death and resurrection life. But I think in order to, to rightly appreciate the manner in which resurrection has entered the world and been applied to those who have believed, we need to understand something of the way Paul argues in this comparison and contrast manner in other instances. When Paul is saying sin entered the world and therefore pollutes all of mankind, all of mankind is corrupted by the entrance of sin through Adam, he's making a particular point. And it's entirely relevant to the idea of death entering the world through Adam and now life and resurrection through Jesus. I want you to turn back in your Bibles for just a moment to Romans chapter 5. This is the passage perhaps best known for the Adam-Christ comparison and contrast. Again, he's saying here that sin entered the world through Adam. When Adam and Eve were tempted and ultimately persuaded by the serpent to partake of forbidden fruit, all of mankind fell in Adam. God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, six days of creation, and God takes a step back and observes it is good. It was as God intended it would be. He forbade them to partake of the fruit of but one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We find a serpent slithering his way onto the scene in Genesis chapter 3 and enticing at first Eve, who ultimately entices her husband, Adam, that God is limiting you in some way. That if you partake of this fruit, you'll not only know good as you have observed it in the Garden of Eden, you'll likewise know evil and therefore find yourself on par with God. The first temptation was not the fruit. The first temptation was to be your own God, which has been the reigning temptation in the hearts of man from that very moment. The picture the Bible paints is one of all of humanity bound up in the person of Adam. He is the father of all mankind. And so with the fall of Adam, all fall with him. Look at Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. Look down to verse 17. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners— so also, through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, there's a, a very specific point that's being made in our passage. And understanding this, I think, can help us to truly delight in what's being said in 1 Corinthians 15. When we say, when the Bible says, when the apostle argues 
that all of mankind is bound up in Adam. As he sins, we all fall under the curse of the garden. You enter into this world a sinner. Do you know why you sin? You sin because you are a sinner. And you were born in that condition. You were born under the curse of the garden. If you've raised children or are raising children, you have observed this experientially. You don't have to teach your children how to do what is wrong. They're quite adept at doing what is wrong. If you took an infant child straight out of labor and delivery and locked him in a room, they'd come out at 18 cussing and stealing. That's how we're wired. We sin because we are born sinners. The psalmist said, I was conceived in sin. That is not a reference to the behavior or the activities of his biological mother and father. It is an observation in reality that he is from his most formative stages of life marked by the curse of the garden. Now, if you think about this, if you can just sort of take a step back, there's, there's a part of this that seems unfair. We might even regard certain elements of this reality as unjust. Now, you are a sinner by your acts of commission. You are guilty before God because of sin that you have committed. But even before that, you are guilty because you are a sinner. You have these acts of commission because you are a sinner. In other words, you sin because you are a sinner. But there was nothing in our background, there was no cognitive awareness of our inclination towards sin prior to those committed sins. We are born into this world as sinners and therefore guilty on some level of someone else's misdeeds. Y'all tracking with me? You and I have been marked by the curse of the garden for what Adam chose to do in the garden. Now, we might, from a certain perspective, regard that as unjust. And that's exactly the point the Apostle Paul is making. When you and I are charged with the guilt of someone else's sin, we tend to regard that as unfair or unjust. But what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5, is that in the same way sin entered the world and the curse of the garden has been applied to all of humanity, so now righteousness has entered the world through Jesus Christ, the second and better Adam. And his righteousness is credited to our account by faith in him. Now, when we're charged with someone else's guilt, we call that unjust. But when we are charged with someone else's righteousness, the Bible calls that grace. And that's exactly what we have received through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Sin entered the world and we have all come under the curse of the garden. But by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the curse has been reversed. And all who believe on him have become the recipients of Christ's righteousness. The deposit of his goodness has been made to our account. I have argued now for years that the neglected part of the gospel, the neglected part of Christ's life, 
is the 30 some odd years he lives in sinless perfection. Those are not throwaway years. Those are not interim years between the moment of his virgin birth and his crucifixion and eventual resurrection. That's not just space filler in the plan and purpose of God. Jesus Christ over the duration of those 30 some odd years is fulfilling in perfection the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus is building a storehouse of goodness that will be by faith accredited to the account of all who believe on him. Sin has entered the world through Adam. But righteousness has entered the world. The goodness of Jesus has been accredited to the account of all who believe on him. Now, something slightly different is being said in 1 Corinthians 15. If you know the chapter, you know it's referred to often as the resurrection chapter. There is a thoroughgoing treatment of the doctrine of resurrection here, a defense of resurrection here. Last year in the Easter message, I took sort of an apologetic approach to the story of the resurrection, arguing for the reliability of the Bible's account of resurrection. In the months since, I have come to terms with the fact that virtually all of the New Testament is about providing a defense for, arguing for the truthfulness of the message of the resurrection. If you're here as a somewhat skeptical doubter, you're here because some family member drug you along, I would challenge you over the course of the next days and weeks that you find some reference work that treats the life and death and resurrection of Jesus from an exclusively historic perspective. What I'm saying to you is find a secular scholar who's looking at the life and story of the resurrection on exclusively historical secular standards and be amazed at the extent to which the story of the New Testament is readily affirmed, even according to secular or historic standards. It, it, there is an element of faith about our belief in the resurrection. No one knows what went on behind that stone-enclosed tomb. But there is great evidence that Jesus in resurrection glory appeared to those disciples. The effect of that has its bearing in the fact that 2,000 years later, here we are on the other side of the world, brothers and sisters world round, still laying down their lives for the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul takes a somewhat defensive posture against false teaching concerning the resurrection in the church at Corinth and addresses this at some length in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The verse we read moments ago, for as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So now he's saying, if we couple this together with Romans 5, that not only has sin entered the world through Adam, death has entered the world through Adam, and not only has righteousness entered the world through Jesus, but resurrection has entered the world through Jesus. Back up to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The idea of fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. And the idea of first fruits is drawn from the experiences of Israel in the Old Testament. God charged the people of Israel that they would give of their first fruits. 
that they would tithe and make their offerings of the first fruits of their harvest. If you've ever been around farmers, especially crop farmers, you may be familiar with this concept or idea. It is one thing to get stem and stalk out of the ground if you're crop farming. It is another thing altogether when stem and stalk begins to bear fruit. There is this collective exhale in the farming world when it becomes clear that what we have planted, it's not just presented itself stem and stalk, but there'll be an actual harvest from this year's efforts. And there's a sigh of relief. What God instructed the people of Israel to do was to give of the first fruits of the harvest. As the harvest began to be brought in, they were not to give off the back end the remainder of the harvest once all the bills were paid and all the things were done. They were to give of the first fruits as an expression of their gratitude that God had provided thus far and an expression of their faith that just as God had provided the first fruits, he would provide the full harvest according to their need. Our call, our invitation to give in the New Testament is no different. We give of our first fruits, not an exclusively agrarian culture, but we give of the first fruits in our own specific ways. We don't pay the bills and take care of needs and take vacations and do various other frivolous things before we give of the first fruits. We give and we trust that just as God has given the first fruits, he will give the full harvest according to our needs and by his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This language is used here as an indication to us that Jesus' resurrection is serving something as a guarantee for us. We can be assured of our physical resurrection by or because of the physical resurrection of Jesus. When we die, we are not to go and live this ghostly, disembodied, eternal existence. We will not be angels with wings playing harps on clouds. You and I will be raised even as we are. One day at the sounding of the trumpet and the return of our Savior Jesus Christ, the seed that is this body sown into the ground will be raised in incorruption. This mortal will be clothed in immortality. And we will be known even as we have been known. We will live even as we are physically in the presence of our Savior, Jesus. And that is such a, a far-fetched thing from this world's perspective. It seems so far away, so distant, so far and so strange. It is that Paul is saying in our passage that you can be assured of this future reality by the truth and reliability of Christ's own resurrection. He's the first fruits, the assurance of our resurrection from the dead. If you're here this morning and you have been born again, you have experienced that there's a dose of resurrection we have the privilege of living under of experiencing in the here and now. You and I were dead in our sins and trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the great danger of spiritual death is that it masquerades as life. And even in this room, there are people who are dead in sins and trespasses masquerading as alive. The promise of the gospel 
is that we may be touched by the power of the resurrection even in the here and now. But even for those made alive in Christ Jesus, we recognize that we only have in part what we will eventually have in full by the promise of resurrection. And this makes all the difference in our life. Consider the ways this ought to be impactful for us. Consider the ways that resurrection ought to make a difference in our life, that Christ is the first fruits of our own resurrection. We have the whole book of Acts to attest to the way the reality of resurrection shapes the course of one's life. In the close of the Gospels, the disciples have largely defected. Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. One of the Gospels depicting Peter as denying Jesus even within the sight range of Jesus. Weren't you with the Galilean? And Peter would even curse in order to prove his separation from Jesus. That same timid defector would be emboldened within a matter of days, so much so that he would pr preach in the, in the face of persecution, arrest, and his eventual execution. The apostle Paul was on the way to kill Christians when he encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that hell-bound hater of God's people would eventually give his life for the preaching of the gospel. Here's what I'm saying to you, church. Get this. There is a measure of invincibility that comes with the doctrine of resurrection. Because we believe in the physical resurrection of our bodies, we can live fearlessly in the face of likely persecution, death, struggling, suffering, anguish, hardship, loss of life. In the face of great despair, we of all people have hope because of the promise of resurrection. Anything we might forego in this life, anything that might be robbed of us or unjustly taken away, God will give back in resurrection and all the more through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is to be a fearless people in all the world, it ought to be the people of God. There ought to be a willingness that we would march face first into the teeth of death if need be, because anything we might lose in the here and now will be restored and all the more in the resurrection of the saints. Certainly the way it impacted the church as expressed in the book of Acts. And there ought to be a measure of fearlessness with which we live as believers in the message of the gospel that centers around the gift of Christ's resurrection. In the same way, that the sin of Adam is assigned to all mankind and the righteousness of Christ is assigned to all who repent of their sin and believe on Jesus. So too, resurrection has been assigned to all who believe on Christ. The resurrection of our Lord is the most certain assurance of this reality. Now what Paul has done again in reaching back into creation is to draw the whole story of God's plan for salvation together. There's a unity about the Bible. 66 books, each making their unique contribution 
to the story of God's plan for the salvation of a people all his own. We begin in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. It's a sweet picture of fellowship between God and man before sin enters the world. The Bible says in Genesis 3, as the story of Adam's fall begins to be told, that God came and he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, seeking fellowship with Adam and with Eve. It's one of the most moving verses in all of the Bible. In the cool of the day, God came and walked in the midst of the garden. And everything is thrown into disarray at the sin of Adam. Humanity spirals downward and downward and downward and downward. We began the Bible in the Garden of Eden. We end the Bible in the Garden of God. Sin had come and polluted the Garden of Eden, but God would come and sanctify the Garden of God. And he restores in the end what has been so corrupted, so polluted by the presence of, of sin. In the end, that's the rest of the story. And at the crossroads of human history, there stands a tree we call Calvary where Jesus dies as a sacrifice for our sin, where Jesus takes our place, where Jesus becomes our substitute, the one who knew no sin becomes sin for us on the cross in order that we might become the very righteousness of God. His dead and lifeless body taken down and buried outside the city. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. The song says, with a breath, he put death to death. All of human history hinges on that particular moment. Jesus' resurrection from the dead changes everything. But there are other parallels that exist between the story of what Jesus has done for us and the creation account. The last week of Jesus' life we refer to as the Passion Week. These Thursday morning men's breakfast, I'm walking through the Passion Week day by day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then almost invariably we skip Saturday to move to Sunday. During the Easter season, it's always interesting to watch social media presentations with regards to Passion Week and liturgical celebrations of the Passion Week or Holy Week as it's referred to in some circles. And almost no one knows what to do with Saturday. Saturday is the last and seventh day of the week, which I would suggest to you is by God's orchestration in order to run parallel to the creation work of Genesis 1 and 2. What was it that God did on the seventh day in the creation of the world? He rested. And so that Saturday, that seventh day, becomes a Sabbath for the people of God. And what was it that Jesus said on that Good Friday before yielding up his spirit and breathing his last? I believe the words were, it is finished. Is it not an indication that Christ has now performed in fullness the work of atoning for our sin? And is it not that the silence of that fateful Saturday was our Savior taking his Sabbath rest from the finished work of sacrificing and shedding his own blood that you and I might enjoy salvation from our sin? We might say of Genesis 1 and 2, 
we have here the creation account. But in the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have the story of recreation. God creating for himself, from mankind, which was so inseparably distant from a righteous God. God recreating from among every people and tongue and tribe and nation, a people all his own for the glory of his name and for the good of those who would be subject to his lordship in all the earth. We have in the death and resurrection of Jesus the recreation of a people separated and distinct unto God for our good and for his glory. I wonder if there might be any other parallels that exist between the finished work of Jesus and those seven days that tell the first week of the earth's existence. It was that on the first day of the week, God said, let there be light. And he separated the day from the night. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. This was day one. Well, I don't know if there's any intent in the way the story of Christ's resurrection is cast, but it is assuredly true that as that stone began to uncover the open mouth of that garden grave, that slivers at first, and then the fullness of gospel light began to shine forth. And the preaching of that message has been the distinguishing mark between the darkness and the light for more than 2,000 years. This morning, the invitation of a resurrected Savior is that you would turn away from your sin and believe on him. God has been at work in all of human history to bring about the salvation of his people. And I would warn you, if you're wrestling against the Spirit, if your efforts this morning are geared toward quenching the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit, if you are, in the words of the book of Acts, kicking against the goads, that he is relentless in his efforts to save his people. If he's been at work for thousands of years to orchestrate the events of mankind and the very minutia of your life to bring you to this moment, at this place, at this time, in order that you might hear the gospel, repent of your sin, and be born again, he will not relent in his seeking and saving that which was lost. It would behoove you to bow the knee, to humble your heart, and to break down your pride, and to yield to the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. This morning, if there has never been a moment in time in your life when you called out to God for the forgiveness of your sin, hear the promise of the Bible, today is the day of salvation. If you can wade through, for some of you first-timers or guests, if you can wade through the awkwardness of trying to sort through all of those people to your right and your left, and the strangeness of being in a new place, not knowing when to stand, when to sit, or how to behave in this setting, if you can get through all of those things that stand to be obstacles to our listening to the still, small voice of God's Spirit, the offer of salvation is full and free. It's as true for you as it's ever been for me. It's been 22 years, and I have yet to get over the old, old story of how a Savior came from glory, how he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. My earnest prayer this morning is that you would know the good news of the gospel 
that you would delight in what God has done, moving heaven and earth to rescue you from your sin. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the gospel, for your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would embolden us in our response, give us courage and conviction. I pray for those who don't know you, who might wonder about what the next steps look like. I can distinctly remember coming under the weight of this kind of message and wondering, what in the world do I do now? So God, I pray that you'd grant the conviction and the boldness to take the steps necessary to seek good counsel and encouragement as, as individuals endeavor to begin to follow Jesus in faith. God, I pray that you'd give them good counsel, encouragement, and help. I pray that today would be for many that milestone moment that they'll look back to many years from now when you sought them and you bought them by your redeeming blood. God, I pray that you would enliven and embolden your church, that you grant courage in conviction that we might live fearlessly, risking life and limb to see the whole world know that Jesus Christ is alive. God, I pray for those who believe but have been timid in their confession of faith, that you would likewise embolden them, that they might even come forth for baptism or bear witness to the truth of the gospel within their family or circle of friends. I, I pray, God, that by the power of your spirit, our response to the preaching of the gospel would be pleasing in your sight, fitting of a king. And I ask it, God, in the power of Jesus' name, amen.